Joshua 24, uh, verses 1 through 28, is what we're going to look at this morning in this new series on the household. Well, if you haven't noticed, our current cultural climate is struggling. I don't think that's a dispute. Regardless of where you find yourself on the spectrum of agreement or disagreement on the present trends regarding the family, we might say the household, we can agree that there isn't agreement, right? Not too many people are agreeing on what constitutes a family or a household. If you ask 100 adults what a man is, you will not have consensus. If you ask that same 100 adults, if you ask what a woman is, Matt Walsh has actually confirmed this, that there will be all kinds of different answers. We don't know what a man is. We don't know what a woman is. If you ask the same group uh, what marriage is, we won't be able to tell you what marriage is. There will be a plethora of different answers and division. If you ask this same group if, uh, if the choices of children uh, should be left up to them or if it should be given to the parents, there's going to be division. People are not going to agree on these most basic things. What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What are kids? What are children? What are parents? So what is the solution? What is the solution? Is there a solution? You might ask, can or should a society exist where such agreement is present? Should we just agree to disagree and keep on going? It is my contention that there is a solution, that such a society can exist, and further, that without this solution, a society cannot, in the long run, exist. Maybe for a time, but not in the long run. In short, the solution that I will contend for, I believe, is the bedrock, the, the foundation to society. It is what holds society together. And without this, you do not have a functioning society because a society implies upon an agreed way of living. Where we come together and say, this is what we believe and we're going to come together and that's going to be the foundation of what constitutes us. So it's not that we're quibbling over minor matters of how one should live one's life. It's not just how you live your way and I live my way. No, we as a modern society, if you think about those questions that I was just asking or we hypothetically were asking to a group of people, what we're doing is as a modern society, we are contesting the fundamentals of what it means to be a man or a woman. We're fighting against that. The simplistic idea of just what is a man or what is a woman. We are pushing back against the order of the cosmos, right? We are no longer saying that the world was made this way. We are pushing against that. We are challenging the cosmic order. So the solution that I'm going to present is the biblical concept of the household. That's what this whole series is going to start circling around. And to springboard this series, I want to start where the scriptures do when such a cultural renewal is in order. That's really what we need is a cultural renewal. And the, where, the place that scripture goes to with uh, uh, such a cultural renewal being in order is covenant renewal. The scripture renews covenant when they recognize that they need uh, a cultural renewal. So we're going to look at Joshua chapter 24, 24 verses 1 through 28. These are the words of God, church. Let's give attention to them this morning. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. 
and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made, them, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw it, what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your own sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. For the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us uh, and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs and, and preserved us in the, all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove us out before all the peoples. The Amorites who lived in the land, therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chose the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth uh, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. 
the word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on this new series, I ask that you would have your grace to be upon us. Help us to think realistically. Help us to think rightly about ourselves, about our households, about our nation, about our communities. Lord, we pray that we would come to you with repentant hearts, with humility, and rend our hearts, not our garments, before you. We pray that you would turn from harm to us, that you would do good to us. Lord, help us to forsake our ways and uh, to look to you to reorder and reconstitute our lives. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and we ask it that you would work it powerfully. There is no other name by which we can ask this in. Amen. So what we've just read was a covenant renewal service. This was a service of the Old Testament people of God. In Scripture, covenant renewal is a significant season in the lives of God's people, which happens before or after pivotal events. It's a time of regrouping, of renewing, reordering, and reliving the story of the gospel. The way that God has worked in our lives throughout history. You notice they look back, look at what he's done to our fathers and how the gospel has been true of them. It's, a, it's recentering ourselves on the gospel and how God is doing that for us too. Of, of recentering our lives in God and accepting and applying his plans for our lives. This is what God says and this is what we're going to do. That's what a covenant renewal service is. And a very similar service happens in Nehemiah 8. You don't have to turn there, but uh, you know the story of Nehemiah as they rebuild the walls. As, as they're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they open up the book of the law and they have this covenant renewal service. Upon reading it, the people weep, though. They're crying. They're, they're weeping, for they realize how far they have strayed from God's order and how their whole rebuilding project was caused because of their unfaithfulness as a society. They were where they were because of the unfaithfulness that they had lived out. They didn't live according to God's law. This caused them to weep, to mourn at the fact that they hadn't lived up to the societal standards that God had put in place for them. They realized God didn't arbitrarily judge them. It wasn't random. He did it because they didn't follow his law. They were reaping the benefits of, you might, of the, the cursings, we would really say, of their unfaithfulness. Now, I chose the Joshua 24 passage to begin this series because it included two important themes that we'll carry through in our series, and that is the covenant and the household. And these two are really kind of one and the same. We might just say simply the covenant household, right? Because a household, what ties it together is the covenant. In verse 25, we see this was a covenant. This, this was a covenant renewal service. In verse 25, it says this. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. So the covenant is what would bind the people together. It was and is still today. That's what covenants are. The invisible union that connected individuals to, to, uh, to each other as a single unit to where one people become a people. Like, do you know what I'm saying here? Where multiple people become one. In, in Nehemiah 8, the covenant renewal service starts, uh, and they gather together, and it says that they gathered as one man. 
Now, this isn't too unfamiliar for, for us, is it, as we think about the church being a single body, right? We are together. There's many members, but we are one body is what uh, the scriptures speak of. So in the New Testament, we see analogies of the body often used for the covenant community of the church. So this applies to us, too. So the covenant was a single point of reference that all parties could appeal to for order. You might say it, it's what constituted them. It was, in a sense, their constitution, right? Starting to hit home a little bit for us is the way that we think about ourselves as a people, as a nation. And it was the, the manner in which they covenanted together. Right? This is what tied them together and what held them together as groups was the households. The households were connected covenantally. Okay, So we have the covenant, now the household. Verse 15, you see uh, Joshua says, but as for me and my house... As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you have covenant faithfulness beginning with the household. But Joshua, he, he wasn't the first man to speak for the household, uh, nor was he the last. All through scripture, you have this idea of the household that is often spoken of in the context of covenant. So the idea goes all the way back to Genesis, all through the New Testament. It's all through the Bible. The household enters into covenant with God, and that and with that comes covenant obligations and covenant blessings and cursings. Okay, So whole households would follow God with a prescribed order given to them. Think of Noah. Noah and his whole household entered the ark, and they all were saved. His whole household. That's the way that the New Testament reflects on it when they think about Noah, his whole household. When Abraham follows God, his whole household is circumcised, not just he and uh, his sons, but also his slaves with them too. So there's this idea of this household uh, holding together as one unit. When the, when the head of a household is baptized in the New Testament, his whole household is baptized with him. You see this in Acts. Further, the scriptures will even go as far as to say in Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved and your household. Okay? So the biblical picture that begins to develop as we think about the household covenantally is that where the head goes, the body follows. Okay, Where the head goes, the body follows. So much so that the church itself is likened to the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of that body. Where we are so in union with Christ that we can be said to be his body as one man, we might say. And then this headship language is used for all kinds of things, such as, such as marriage, right? We, we see Paul talking about the headship in marriage. So Paul will refer to the church as the household of God. In 1 Timothy 3, he will require elders to be able to manage their own households well. He will require deacons to manage their households well to hold office. And his logic is that if a man cannot manage his own household well, how will he manage the household of God? The church said another way, the healthy household precedes and qualifies the healthy church as far as leadership goes. You do not become a good leader of the household by being a good leader in the church. You become a good leader in the church by being able to manage your household well. The order is very important. Now you can see uh, why the household is so important. Even the health of the church is contingent upon how we manage our Households. If we don't have healthy households ruling, we might say, if we don't have healthy households and leadership, then everything else suffers because of it. Where the head goes, the body follows. Okay, But what is the household? Now, 
I'm going to be honest. Even when at the end of this uh, sermon today, we're not going to have a complete picture of the household. We're going to have to build it out over a little bit. Um, I don't want to make my sermons twice as long. I, I might start to lose you. So we're going to have to break it up a little bit. We're, but we're going to get an idea today of what is the household. And to begin talking about the household, I want to talk about words for a minute. So let's talk about words. Postmodernity loves words. They do. They love words, but they love to redefine words uh, with a new spin on them to where they bring a new meaning. Okay, And they do this because they know the world is largely moved. It's, it's shook. It's formed. It's shaped by language and communication. That is the way that we function as a society. If communication breaks down, if language breaks down, you don't have society anymore. Right? There's, there's power of life and death in the tongue. Okay? That applies in many different kinds of ways. This is why the confusing of languages in Genesis 11 at Babel was such a monumental point in history. That's why God went straight to their languages and their communication to break down that society. Because he said, if we don't do this, they'll keep building and going in the wrong direction. Okay? So the moment that meaning and language shifts, the moment confusion and chaos ensues. But one of the ways we find meaning in language is from the history of language, looking back at what words actually mean, the the ways that we've used them in the past. So in keeping with the the classical tradition, we attempt to keep words from stretching into shallow and meaningless terms by using the words as they've always been. We, We say a word and we say it like we've always meant it. We don't start to change what a word means like a man or a woman. We, we believe what we've always believed about the word and keep it to that. So the more we dig into the meaning of a word, the more we find its power. Now think about that. The more you understand what a word means, the more you can use it in language and the more powerful that word becomes. So the more that we understand language and the more we understand the words that we're using, the more power that we will have in the world. So a little etymology, that's, that's the study of words, will blow your mind in how much a word can be an iceberg of a concept. What, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, we often see the tip of the iceberg when we're talking about a word. Someone will say a word and we'll see the tip of the iceberg. But if you do a, a deep study on that word, you, and you kind of look at the underneath of, a, you know, the iceberg concept, right? The above you see a little bit up here, but down here there's this monumental story of what is there. If you do that with words, what you often find is there's this huge big picture of this word that you've been ignorant of. You don't know like, oh, that packs a way bigger punch than we realize. So for example, do you realize that the word house Right? We're thinking about the household. The word house in Latin is domus. Okay, domus. And knowing this, it won't surprise you that we also get from this the word domestic. Right? You can start to hear it, domestic. That makes sense, right? We think about the domestic arts, the house. Okay, but what might surprise you is that from this we also get the word dominion. Okay, dominion. Think about the household as it relates to dominion, or that. Oikos, the Greek word for house. Okay, we'll, we'll take it in a different language. Oikos, the Greek word for house. Uh, take that, so, and then take the word for law in Greek is namos. So you have oikos, house, namos, law. Okay, so you piece these two words together and you have the modern English word of economy. Oikos, namos, oikonomy. Okay, it means house law. So even our economy, what makes this country go round, is based upon something like house law, how we order our households, okay? Think about that. Our whole economy is based upon the idea of a household, or at least the word used to be, 
Maybe not so much now. So you can see that stuff started to stretch, hasn't it? Meaning has changed over time. But once you get the, the meaning of a word, there's power in that. Okay? So this word household packs a powerful punch as it stretches into many, many realms of power, such as family, church, and state. Right? Some of these big spheres of, of government and authority and the way that they function in society, understanding the household has to come before you can understand any of those things. So the origin of the household, where did this begin? It all comes together biblically at the beginning, actually, in the Garden of Eden. Shouldn't be any surprise to you, right? The first household is actually Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, it says this. Now, I want you to pay attention to the language here as we're starting to think about the household. You've heard this a billion times, right? We read Genesis 1 all the time in church. But think about it as it relates to the household. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing. That moves on earth. Okay. Now there's a million directions that we could go with this because the image of God is so foundational and fundamental to what man is. But let me boil it down very simply and bring it back to the household. According to Genesis 1, man is created in the likeness of God after his image. We image what God is. It's a picture of who God is. And from this image flows that God has made man a unity, male and female diversity. Okay. You can kind of see this in the Trinitarian Godhead, right? There is three gods, one person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that is God, okay? Something of man and woman reflects that, okay? We'll talk about more of that in the coming weeks. But so, And in that conjunction of male and female, of marriage, mankind as one body is to have dominion over everything alive. That's what Genesis 1 says. Mankind, man, man and woman, the household is to have a dominion over everything alive. And then God blesses them and commands them to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. That's a lot of work. Taking over the world, essentially, is what he's telling Adam and Eve in this first household. So here we have the origins of the household. It started all the way back in the garden. Man reflects the image of God in that he has dominion over all things. Who has ultimate dominion over all things? God does. Okay, so man reflects that in the way that he comes together as man and woman, as a household. And that unity and diversity in the Trinitarian Godhead is reflected in the complementarity of male and female. Right? It takes two of these to, to constitute mankind. That is, mankind is an image bearer in the fact that they reflect God's image in relationship together, particularly in a well-functioning community. We might say a household, both in marriage and in wider society. Okay, So they come together as a household. And mankind's goal, we might say the goal of the household, is not inward-facing but outward. That is, the household is to grow and expand as a pattern for society through fruitfulness until it fills the earth. That's the pattern in Genesis that God says, do it everywhere. Right? Take over the entire earth. He doesn't say, you guys just do your thing here, and then the next group, they can do their thing, and the next group, they can do their thing. No, he says, this is the pattern. You two, mankind, have dominion over the whole earth. But not in any manner, but in a well-subdued and subjected way. 
So we don't fill the earth with warm bodies and let those warm bodies do whatever they want. We keep them subjected. We take dominion. So we fill the earth in a well-ordered, well-cultivated household that's able to steward the creation faithfully. Like That's the role of the household, stewarding creation faithfully in the way that God has told us to do. So now that we've seen the origins of the household and a bit of its task, which is really big, right, taking over the world, dominion of everything alive, let's think about uh, the shape of the household. Fill the, the picture out a little bit more of what the household is. If you keep reading in Genesis 2 and 2.15 at the detailed account of creation of uh, man, because you have Genesis 1, it says man and female, they are created. But in Genesis 2, you see another uh, picture of that from a different angle. And this time it says that man and woman, mankind, is to work the garden and keep it. This language is very familiar, right? Work the garden and keep it. Said another way, work and keep the household. Okay. Adam was placed in the garden by God. Think about this. This was his dwelling place. This is where this was his house. This was Adam and Eve's house. The garden was. So for all intents and purposes, the garden was the house of Adam. And when you think of the Garden of Eden, I want you to try to get your modern brain away from it. Don't think about your raised bed garden in your backyard. That's not what the the Garden of Eden is. All right. This is this is. Uh, if you want to try to liken it something closer to what we have in our common day language now, maybe think something closer to homestead. Okay, something way bigger than that. It was it was a small scale economy where you work and keep everything pertaining to it, and it has all that you need right there. Okay, it's not just a house. It, uh, the garden was something much more than that to Adam. It was everything that they needed and the pattern for all of society. Okay, now I'm not saying that the, the the idea of the household is a homestead. Don't hear that. But if you're trying to relate it to something, don't relate it to your small garden in the backyard. That that's the point I'm trying to make when you think of the Garden of Eden. Don't just think a couple tomatoes. Okay, so not that long ago. Though this is what people actually thought of when they thought of the household. It was something more of a a small-scale economy. They didn't think of the home as a place of rest from work. The home was their work. There's a difference. We started to shift, haven't we? It wasn't a rest from work. You go out and work out there, and then you come back and say, I'm glad I'm home, TV. that's, That's a new idea. Okay? So the home was their work. The Industrial Revolution, though, stripped the work of the home from the family, and what followed was the family leaving the household. So if, if you're going to work uh, or if you're going to eat, you're going to work. So mom and dad, they left the home, and now the home is empty, and mom and dad are out there working. So, But if you consider Genesis uh, uh, in, in the picture that it gives us, work was actually a part of the household, and that was before the fall. Okay, So that – Kind of changes the way that we think about work too, right? Work and keep was a command given before sin entered the picture. So work wasn't uh, uh, work wasn't a necessary evil of the household. It was actually a necessary good, a blessing. The working and keeping was part of the normal, ordinary household that was supposed to function as the pattern for the world. Okay, we've had a shift, haven't we? We're, we're not there as a culture anymore. We don't think about the household in that way. So. As you can see, we've lost something over the years when it comes to how we think of the household. It used to be that the household was the foundation and the center of society, the home, the family. That's where it all was at, and everyone believed that for the most part, at least around here in the United States. When we came together, we knew this. Like That wasn't really a dispute. If you didn't have a a well-ordered family, how in the world would you order a nation was kind of our logic, right? We don't think like that anymore. Now people consider it a refuge and escape from it. 
That's what the household is. Let's let's re, uh, recluse and get back from society as we go into our home. So the home and society are two totally different things. And really, home is just the way where you run away from society. That's the way that we've started to think about the household. Now, our, our government even chides us when we consider taking responsibility for our households. Now, think about it. Household education, for instance, it's looked at as a retreat from society, not a construction of it, right? Household education. As we educate our kids, that's not building up our society. That's running away from it because you're not sending your kids to the public school. Public school is society, right? Okay. Education is the government's job, and that's what people have come to think of. Education and household, how we think as a household, that is now in the government's hand. And that's not just out there thinking. This is the way our president thinks. I'm going to quote him, not to slam him, but this is just what he says. This is where we are as a country, where the head goes, the body follows. This is what our president has said recently at the household. He's talking to teachers, and this is the context. He's talking to teachers about their education or about the kids' education, and he says this about the kids. They're all our children. And the reason you're the teachers of the year is because you recognize that. They're not someone else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. I think about that, the implications that come with that. Or consider some of the things that have been said on campaign trails. I'll, I'll give another quote, uh, quote. I won't say his name. He says, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Okay, this is where we're at. This is people. They, they're saying this as ways that they're thinking they are going to get elected. This is their pitch. Where, where, this is where I want to go is what this man is saying. And there's people that like that. Okay. So the point I'm trying to make is not that the government is bad. It really isn't. I'm not saying that. Governing authorities are actually part of God's ordained authority structure. We're supposed to respect it, really. So the point I'm trying to make though is that the world is trying to cut. The invisible covenantal ties of the household. They're they're trying to cut at it. But the truth is, is that these covenantal ties cannot be cut. They are the very order of nature. You can't cut them. You can kick against them. You can rebel against them, but you can't cut them. The responsibilities will be there whether you like it or not. Okay? So the responsibilities of covenant are inescapable because it's the way that God has built us and called us to build the world. You can't get away from it. You can't change the pattern. It's in us. We are imaged after after it. Our image reflects his image. Our building reflects his building. Okay. Our glory reflects his glory. So what is glorious to God should be glorious of us. That's the way that humans were created to work as a household. So the central lie is that responsibility is only as thick as your will. You only have to do it if you want to do it. You're only responsible for the responsibilities you want to have. If you have kids, if you don't want them to be your responsibility, you don't have to have them be your responsibility. You can pass that off. Society doesn't have an invisible structure that holds it together covenantally, the lie goes. Society is only what we want it to be at any given moment. If we change our minds, then we'll reconstitute society, even though there is a constitution already. Okay? That's the way that we have come to think and we've been lied to, is that we can just change things as we go all the time, not considering all the covenantal ties that are already holding this together. And some of the particular lies about your household are currently this, that your kids are not your responsibility. They're not your responsibility. Your spouse isn't covenantally bound to you. Only feelings hold you together. As soon as the feelings go, you guys can walk. 
Work is a necessary evil, and you're never in charge of it. And most importantly, you cannot depend on a small-scale economy like a household. You need a large-scale, outsourced, government-ran, communistic economy to have a real society. These are some of the things that are being fed to you. Now, it might not be as explicit um, as that. No one's going to say it like that. But this is the kind of thing that is being pushed towards you as a household. Okay? If you didn't realize it, we are at war. Okay? That, that, that's fighting language for, for me and my household, at least. Um, the, the biblical picture that we see isn't what we're seeing in our society now. We're seeing a, a fight against it. And it's not with the government. It's not with big corporations. I know that we're, we're fighting so much about some of the thing, the corporations that are holding us up. But we have to remember our, our, our fight is not with flesh and blood. It's not. I really want you to get that this morning. It's not with flesh and blood. It's with the powers and principalities that embody these things. Okay. In Ephesians, right after Paul gives the specific instructions for the household, such as the husband-to-wife relationship, the parent-to-child, and then the masters-to-bondservants, he says this. Right after he says, this is my household order that I'm giving to the church, he says this in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So what Paul is saying is if you aren't willing to put up a fight for your household, if you aren't willing to apply God's protective armoring, the, the, the laws, the, the order that he's given to the household, if you're not willing to grant that or even grant that we are at war, you will not be able to withstand the evil day. If you're not ready, you're going to get wiped out. That's what he's saying. Put on the full armor of God because if you don't have the armor, you're not going to be able to defend if you, if you don't have the, the, the way to fight back, you are not going to be ready. And Peter does the same thing, but he does it right before giving his household instructions in his first epistle. In 1 Peter 2, he does the same thing. He gives all the order of the household. He actually talks about government and then marriage and then family. He, he says all these things, uh, but right before giving that, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying the household is actually at war right now. There's, there's a warfare going on. We can't see it with our eyes necessarily, but there's a war going on in the cosmic powers that are invisible. He says, which wage war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which we see often, right, uh, we Christians, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, so he's saying that we need to be able to act in such an honorable way that they aren't going to be able to argue with the work that we're doing. Okay, that, that is part of our defense. The waging war is the ordering of the household so that when they see us, they are going to have nothing else to say because there it is. It works. Okay, that's, that's what Peter says when he's thinking about the household. Paul says we're at war. Peter says we're at war. Uh, C.R. Wiley, which I'm going to draw a lot from his book, he sums up his whole book on this topic by saying the household is not just a shelter from a war zone. It's the command center from which we launch our attacks. It starts in the home. The household has to start first. We can't get back to a healthy family by starting first with the government or starting first even with the church. 
Think about that. We have to start with the household. So as we close, I realize that we haven't given a complete picture of the household yet. Uh, We still need to look in depth at the household management instruction God gives us so we can know how to defend our households. But my purpose this morning was simply to wake us up to the reality that we're in wartime, right? I I want us to say, whoa, wait a second. Something's shifted huge. Um, There's a lot more going on here than what we usually give credit to. We've kind of just been going about our business as our households saying it'll be fine. uh, Things will kind of fall out in the end and work all out. No, that's what I want you to say. No, actually – we're at war, and if we don't recognize we're at war, we won't, we won't be fighting. Okay? We're just going to be going about our business in peacetime. There's not peace right now. There's not agreement. There's not unity where we're at. So you may not understand completely what we're rallying around yet, but even a quick glance at Genesis tells us that something has gone terribly wrong. You start to see that identic state and uh, the way that they managed their household and how that was supposed to be the pattern for society to go out into the world, and we're not doing that. Okay, so, I, so I want us to see it from that angle. The, the charge that we're taking up today is the same as the covenant renewal service in Joshua's day. Joshua tells them, God gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. That's where we're at. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. That's you, church. Church, we are recipients of a well-cultivated nation. But over the last few decades, we have squandered and eroded the blessings as we tried to cut at the invisible ties that held it all together. It's not working. It's not working out for us. So the call for you today is to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. To put away the gods that your fathers served. Maybe your parents did it a different way. Maybe they were even part of the problem. I don't know. But our call is to serve the Lord. And if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me... In my house, hopefully for you and your household, whole household, we'll serve the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we start this new series, we're absolutely going to need our help, or your help. Lord, we pray that you would order our lives in such a way that it's going to bring blessing to us. That we're going to be able to uh, have our grandchildren reaping the benefits of the things that we're putting in place now because of the order you've given to us. Lord, let us keep you at the center of it. We pray that we would recognize that Jesus is king, and if we're not bowing our knee to Jesus as king, we are in rebellion. Any other way 